All right. Am I on? Check one, two. Hello, hello, hello. Okay, we're good. <clears throat> Thank you, Keith, for reading that. I, I was supposed to be doing scripture reading this morning, and I just wanted to give it to somebody else to read. And Keith accepted, and then I told him the verses after. I was like, yeah, just the whole chapter of Exodus 16. Um, so thank you, Keith. Um, I, I didn't want to break that up at all. I thought it was all beneficial to read, and it, it will add to this morning's sermon. Let me pray. Father, I just thank you for this opportunity to preach your word. I pray, Lord, that you give me peace in my mind, that I'm able to effectively preach what I prepared, what your spirit has laid on my heart this week. I pray that I don't go outside the bounds of your word, that I stay within what is true. Lord, I pray for wisdom as I preach. Guide my tongue. Let there be nothing I say that I shouldn't say. And Lord, I just pray that uh, this morning we can look at your word and learn more about you and be reminded of the love that we have in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. So we thank you and we just surrender this service over to you. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. If you have your Bibles, you could turn to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. This morning there will be a lot of Scripture being read. And if you're angry, I would just say, well... I think that's the best place to be and to read. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the beginning of, of John chapter 6, and then we're going to get to the I am statement, which is about halfway in the chapter. We'll camp out there for a little bit. But if you have your Bibles, John chapter 6, we're continuing our series during this Advent theme. Um, last week was hope, and we looked at Jesus proclaiming to be the light of the world. He says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then this morning, we looked at verses, we sang songs all about peace. Peace that Jesus gives us, peace that, that he gives to sinners who can be reconciled to God. So as we go through these I am statements of Jesus, my prayer is that we can link each one loosely to Advent and be reminded of who Jesus says he is. So last week started the series, I am. These are statements Jesus made that John records in his gospel. And these are statements that Jesus makes about himself. This is not someone's interpretation. This is not John's interpretation. This isn't uh, what other people have said about him, but this is Jesus speaking first person. This is who I am. And in each statement, there's a clear fact that he's making that he is God. And also through the metaphors that he uses, these statements, we learn a little bit more of the characteristic or the nature of Jesus. So John chapter 6 We'll start reading, and then I'll, I'll stop, and we'll talk a little bit. We'll read, I'll stop, we'll talk a little bit. And then when we get to the later verses, we'll, we'll camp out on them. If you have your notes in your bulletin, you could, you could hopefully take a look and fill in the blanks, and it'll help keep it a little bit more organized and structured. But we're going to look at the first 15 verses, and we're going to see Jesus' public miracle. So that's number one, Jesus' public miracle. Let's read together. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Let me pause there. So we, we see something that Jesus has crowds following him. And we learn why. We don't have to guess. We learn why. They're following Jesus because they're seeing supernatural miracles take place. The sick are being healed. Wherever Jesus goes, it's like supernatural divine events happen. And the people are drawn to that. They're following Jesus. Last week I mentioned that when Jesus is preaching at the temple, when he makes that claim to be the light of the world, Jesus is not a nobody. Jesus is well known. 
He's famous. He's popular. As you read the Gospels, if you take note of, 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 always look at the numbers and the crowds and the language the authors use here, Jesus had a following. So these people are seeing the miracles of Jesus. They're drawn to him. They might have seen someone get healed. They might want that hope of getting healed. And they're flocking and they're going to Jesus. Verse 3, Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Jesus said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get even a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to Jesus, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves of bread and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in that place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. So I'll stop again just to talk about what we read. There's this crowd following Jesus. We see that it's about 5,000 men. Now most preachers or commentators or, or theologians have estimated that this doesn't include their wives or children. So it might be closer to 12,000, 15,000. It doesn't matter. 5,000 and 12,000 is still impressive because what do we see? That there's five loaves of bread and two fish. And we're going to get to the miracle in a second, but Jesus is saying, how are we to feed them? Let's let, let, let's get some food to feed them. And he's saying this because he knows what he's going to do. He's testing his disciples here. Verse 11. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he prayed to God. He distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. <clears throat> and when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments of the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And I'll stop again. I don't want to just skip over this right, and get to the I am, but it's important to look at what Jesus just did. He multiplied food, what, from five loaves of bread and two fish to feed a crowd of at least 5,000 men, of, of probably more than 5,000 in number. He gives thanks to it. He prays over it. He gives it to them. And I love that he says this, that they ate as much as they wanted. It wasn't like he was like taking the little bits of bread. And he's like, hey, here's a little bit for you. Here's, here's your little section. Here's, here's a little fish. Sorry, you got the fish eye. You know, oh, sorry, you got the, the, the tail on the sun. But no, it says there was enough food for each person to get their bellies worth, that they were full, they were satisfied. And not only that, but there was leftovers. So after that, he collects the leftovers. Now, verse 14. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So the people saw what Jesus did. It's not like they just sat down like, oh, Wow, Jesus, thank you so much for getting all this bread, for buying it for us. It was so generous of you. They saw this miracle take place. It was public. And they say this in verse 14, when they see this sign, they see the miracle, they exclaim, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. And the people most likely might be quoting Moses. If you go to Deuteronomy 18 verse 15, Moses is speaking of a prophet to the Israelites. He says, there's a prophet who is coming who will be better than me. There's someone coming who is greater than me. You shall listen to him because he speaks God's word. So right now, these people, are, they're, they're making a connection. The crowd, they're saying, 
I think Jesus, I think He's the prophet. I think He's the one that Moses is talking about. In verse 15, perceiving then that they were about to come and take Him king by force, or sorry, take Him by force to make Him king, Jesus withdrew. So Jesus knew their hearts. He knew their minds. He knew what the crowd wanted Him to do. And it sounds like it would be a pretty good deal. Like, Jesus, we want you to be king. But Jesus knows why He's here. He's here, what, to be the light of the world, to give life. He's not here to be the king. His first coming was all about, what, being the savior to the world. Coming to those who are broken, those who are sinners, who are sick, to bring healing and reconciliation. So the crowd, it didn't matter what Jesus would have said, they would have taken him by force for their own selfish desires to have him be their ruler. So those first 15 verses, as we looked at, that's Jesus' public miracle. Now we get to the next section where it says Jesus walks on water and these next couple of verses we'll go through them. We see that point two. This is Jesus' private miracle. Private miracle. Let's read at verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. The wind became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, and coming near the boat, they were frightened. But Jesus said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. So, pause here for a minute. We know this account is the same that takes place in Matthew 14, where we have uh, Peter walking on water towards Jesus. It's the same story, just recorded in John's Gospel from a different perspective, but it's the same story. What do we see happening? It's the next, or it's that evening, it's later in the day. Jesus is still not with his disciples. His disciples sail across the sea because Jesus commands them to do that. And it says it's dark, and they were sailing, and they were going without Jesus. And what happens? There's a storm that comes up. A storm is brewing, and they're frightened. But not only that, they look in the distance and they see somebody walking on water. And immediately their first thought is, it's a ghost. Right? It's not enough to just be afraid of, of the open sea. It's not enough to just be afraid of darkness and wind and storms. Last night I was here late at night, and I walked home. Something about wind makes everything more scary. I walked home, and I was like walking across the field, and I'm like, like, okay, is there a tornado that's going to come down and just like, scoop me up? I'm like, please, no, not like this. No, not right now. I've got to preach tomorrow. Um, something about the wind and the waves, it, just, it was scary. And on, the to- on top of that, they see someone walking on water. Normal people don't walk on water. They think it's a ghost. We're, we're going to die. If not by the wind, this ghost is going to kill us. And what? We see that it's Jesus. And Jesus greets them and says this, It is I. Do not be afraid. When he says it is I, interestingly enough, he's using the same Greek words that he uses for each of these I am statements. Ego emi, if you remember last week, that's the name of God found in Exodus 3. I am who I am. That's the name of Yahweh. Jesus is saying to his disciples, it's me. It is I. It's God. Do not be afraid. And I love this. It says they're glad to take him into the boat. Have you ever gotten scared? Stephanie likes to scare me. And I'm like, I'm so glad I'm not like a violent person. Like if I get scared, I start flailing. Like, I'm like <gasps> Usually when you watch compilations of people getting scared, their first thing is they want to like hug the person that scared them after. They want comfort. Like, okay, all right, I'm not going to die. Thank you so much. We see what? They're glad to take Jesus. And within this section and in Matthew's account, 
in this private miracle, there's four miracles that Jesus does. And I don't know if you picked up on them. Jesus, one, he's walking on water. That's a miracle. He has Peter walk towards him on the water. That's another miracle. That's in Matthew's account. It says, after Jesus got on the boat, the wind ceased. That's the third miracle. And the fourth one, I don't know if you caught this, it says, they were glad to take him, verse 21, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. I read that, I'm like, did, did Jesus like teleport them to their location? Did He, he brought them there supernaturally. He, he brought them there without them traveling that remaining distance by rowing. So within this private miracle, we actually see four miracles that Jesus does for his disciples. And we know from John's account that the, the disciples, because of this, they worshipped Jesus. They bowed, they bowed down at his feet, they worshipped him, and they exclaimed, truly, truly, you are the Son of God. You are God. Now in these next sections from 22 to verse 40, we're going to camp out, we're going to read Jesus' I Am statement. He claims to be, which is point number three, I am the bread of life. So let's continue reading. Verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. So now we go to the next day. The crowd is still on the other side of the sea where Jesus fed them. They wake up the next morning and they're like, where's Jesus? Where, where are his disciples? We saw his disciples leave in their boat. There's only one boat there, but Jesus didn't go with them. Maybe he's still around. So they're looking there. They're seeking Jesus and they find out he's not there. And it's interesting, I think they're trying to find Jesus by following the disciples. They must have known where the disciples were going or where they were sailing to because I think the logical next step is if we don't know where Jesus is, he's probably close to where his disciples would be. So what? They go across, or verse 25 now, actually before we get there, it says that they're seeking Jesus. Now at first as you're reading this story, you're like, man, these people, they, they love Jesus. They're, they're in love with him. They love him so much they want him to be their ruler, their king. They're seeking Jesus. This sounds like a pretty good thing. Like, like, hey, I want to be part of this crowd. I want to seek Jesus just like they did. But we'll get to verse 25 right now. When they found him on the other side of the sea, this is the crowd, they said to Jesus, Rabbi, teacher, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Let me pause here. They say, Jesus, how'd you get here? Maybe they're thinking he snuck out or, or maybe he, they thought maybe he, fl he flew over there or something of divine nature happened, right? But Jesus doesn't answer their question. He goes right to their hearts as to why they're seeking him, which is not a good reason, right? First, they were following Jesus, seeking Jesus because of the miracles that he did. Then they were fed by Jesus, right? By the, by the multiplication of that food. Now Jesus says, it's not because of these signs and wonders and the miracles, but now you're following me. Why? Because I fed you. Because I gave you a meal. In Jesus' time, bread was something you had to work to eat. It took effort, it took time, it took energy, it took resources to make food, especially to bake bread back then. And it satisfied them. And what they got from Jesus was a free meal. They had their bellies worth of food. They were satisfied. And they're now seeking Jesus. Why? Jesus, you got any more of that bread? You have any more fish? We're, we're hungry. 
Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, verse 26, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Verse 27, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then the crowd said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in me, or sorry, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to Jesus, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What works do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Now verse 35, this is the I am statement. Jesus said to the crowd, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise up on the last day. Verse 41. The Jews grumbled about this, because Jesus said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? I'm going to pause there. I'm going to stop there. We're going to camp out in this statement that Jesus says. He claims to what? Be the bread of life. I am, I am the bread of life. Ego imi. I am, I am the bread of life. So even at that claim of Jesus, he's claiming what? To be God. He's claiming the name, the holy name of God, Yahweh, found in the Old Testament. And as Jesus makes this claim to be the bread of life, there's three things I want to highlight and look at together this morning. So in your notes, letter A under number three, we have the incarnation of the bread. B, we have the salvation of the bread. And C, we have the satisfaction of the bread. So incarnation, salvation, satisfaction. So let's look at letter A, incarnation. Whenever I... I bring up theological terms or big words with the youth group students. I always say this, we have to define it together, that way we're on the same page. If we start off on different pages, we're getting confused. It's not going to flow. So if you were to just Google incarnation, or look it up in the dictionary, it literally means to take on flesh. And as Christians, as a body of believers here this morning, we believe that God became flesh, that he took on human flesh, that Jesus Christ came down from heaven to earth, that the God who's the creator, who's outside of time, entered into time, that God who's the creator enters into creation as man. Now Jesus Christ is both fully God and fully man, I heard a preacher say this, he's not 50% man, 50% God. He's 100% man and 100% God. And if you're, looking, if you're thinking of percentages, you're like, okay, that's 200%. That doesn't really make sense. There is a mystery here to the incarnation of Christ. He's both 100% man, 100% God. 
A couple of verses here, we read one of the Christmas verses, Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son. There's man, right? A son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, Emmanuel which means what? God with us. Fully human, fully man, fully God. John 1, 1 and one fourteen. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh. There's the incarnation. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and the truth. And last one from Paul, in Colossians 1, he says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. When you look at Jesus, as you study Jesus, when you look at how, what He said and what He did and how He acts and treats people, that's God. And then in verse 19, he says, For in Jesus... All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Not some, all fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So as Christians, this is a pillar of our, of our faith. We have to believe this, that Jesus Christ came down from heaven, entered into his creation. He is the holy God-man. He's fully God, fully human. And from Jesus' claim to be the bread of life, right? he says, I am the bread of life, in this chapter, five times, Jesus affirms that he has come down from heaven to earth. Two times the crowd then grumbles and, and repeats it back to Jesus saying, you came down from heaven? And then an additional five times on top of that, Jesus says that the Father had sent him. So in these ten things that Jesus affirms and says, he's making a point. He's saying, I'm the Son of God who has come down from heaven and I was sent by my Father. Because of this, right, the crowd, if you look at verses, if you go back a few verses here to verses 30, the crowd is demanding a sign from Jesus. They're saying, Jesus, prove it. Prove to us that you are who you say you are. Prove to us that you can give us this bread of life. And what they do is they say, Jesus, I don't know if you remember, but do you remember this, this prophet Moses back in the Old Testament? I don't, I don't know if you remember what he did for the Israelites, how he provided this, this heavenly bread for them. And that's why I had Keith read the whole chapter. If you zoned out or maybe got lost, the Israelites were complaining to Moses. They were grumbling. They were saying, this is David's interpretation, we would rather die as slaves in Egypt with full bellies than to live free out here in the wilderness with no promise of food for the next day. So God hears their grumbling. He provides manna for them every morning. And I love when Keith read because he, he fluctuated his voice to make it clear just the unbelief of the Israelites. God commands them what? Don't save the leftovers. There'll be more the next day. And what do they do? They save the leftovers. And then he says, for the sixth day, right, the day before the Sabbath, collect double your portion because there won't be any on the Sabbath. And what do they do? They go on the Sabbath and they're like, where'd the bread go? Right? And I just see just God's grace in that. God's grace even in their disobedience. But we see that God sustains the Israelites for 40 years with this manna. And eventually, the Israelites, they get sick of it. They, they do. They complain and they grumble even about this free manna, this bread, this, this miracle they see every day from God. But what the crowd is saying to Jesus, Jesus, you fed us yesterday, and that was one time. You only fed us once. Do you remember Moses? He fed the Israelites for 40 years with this bread from heaven. What, what else can you do? Where, where's our bread for today? If you're better than Moses, shouldn't you give us more bread? Shouldn't you give us more? And I love that Jesus corrects them by saying it wasn't Moses, 
but who? It was God who gave them that bread, and that only God can give the true bread from heaven that gives eternal life. And the crowd, obviously, they said, okay, well, we want that bread. What do we do? We, we want it. Give us that bread. And then Jesus says what? I am that bread. I am the bread of life. Just as God provided the heavenly bread for the Israelites to sustain them in the wilderness, to feed them physically for 40 years, Jesus is claiming in the same way that he is sent from the Father. He's the bread that came down from heaven, the incarnation of the bread, to sustain the spiritual, not the physical, the spiritual needs of the people, of the crowd. So, Point A, we see the incarnation of the bread. The bread came down. Jesus came down. As we celebrate the Advent, we we read those verses, right? Jesus came down from heaven. We celebrate and we rejoice at his birth. The second point we see is the salvation of the bread. If you can, turn to John chapter 6, verse uh, verse 47. John 6, verse 47. This is a little later. We didn't read it. But Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Again, he says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So Jesus is telling them of the saving power of the bread of life, of of him being the bread of life. He's telling them what he has to offer them. He reminds the crowd that even though the Israelites ate this manna, ate this heavenly bread that rained down every morning from heaven, even though they ate it, they still died. That bread that God gave them could not give them any sort of eternal life physically. And not only that, but it didn't satisfy them Eternally, they had to do every day, eat bread, eat. So that bread, that gift from God, it wasn't enough to satisfy them eternally or to save them from dying. They all ended up dying. Each day they had to go out, they had to pick their day's worth. It was a complete reliance on God's grace, on God's mercy. It was a complete trust in God that he would sustain them. He gave them just enough manna. He told them, collect what you need for the day. And there was always enough for them for that day. And what Jesus is saying is a little different. He's saying, if you partake in me, the living, the true bread that came down from heaven, you will live forever and you'll never die. That's the promise of salvation from the bread of life, from Jesus. And in both Jesus' claim to be the bread of life, and even last week as we looked at him being the light of the world, he promises us eternal life. But he also tells the crowd how to get it. So Jesus says, here's my offer. This is how you get it. In verses 26 to 29, if you want to flip back to those few verses, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. Jesus says, stop working for the physical, stop looking after the physical, look to the spiritual that can last for an eternity. They said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answers them, this is the work of God. You believe in him whom he has sent. So immediately the crowd goes to works. They say, okay, Jesus, 
your offer of this, this, this true bread. What do we have to do? How can I earn it? What can I be doing to please God? If there's something I can do, please tell me because I want this bread. And Jesus' response is what? Believe in the one whom God has sent. Believe in the bread of life. He's saying ultimately believe in me. And from this I am statement of Jesus, we learn what Jesus has to offer. Salvation, eternal life, but also how we can obtain it through faith, through his grace. We know from scripture, and I think most of us know this, salvation is a gift of God's grace that can never be earned. It can never be worked for. We can never deserve it. Paul says in Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast. If I believe that Jesus Christ paid 99.9% of my sins on that cross and I did the 0.1%, then I can boast to myself and say, Jesus, thank you for doing all that work, but look how good I am. Look at that 0.1% that I earned myself. Right? That's boasting in yourself. But as Christians, we believe what? Jesus paid it all. We, we can't do anything. We're hopeless. We're helpless that Jesus had to come and pay the price and pay it in full. He did all the work. So that Why? We can't boast in anything but boast in Jesus and his finished work on the cross. And if you think, and this, I've got to be honest, if you think you can please God by being a good person, I'm not trying to be mean, I'm being honest. If you think you can be good enough for God, you either have a really high view of yourself or you have an ignorance of the holiness of God. Right? You either think, man, I'm pretty good, God has to accept me, or you think, well, God's standard is, is pretty low, he'll accept me because I'm good enough. Jesus makes it clear to the crowd right here, there's not a good work, there's not a good deed, there's nothing you can do, but what does he say? Believe in me. Believe in me for eternal life. Now we get to letter C. So we have the incarnation, we have the salvation, we have the satisfaction of the bread. In verse 38, again, this is the I am statement. Jesus said to, him, said to them, I am, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now, I don't know if you caught that promise that Jesus made. He says, there's no hunger for those who come to me. He says, there's no thirst for those who believe in me. Jesus is claiming to offer something that can satisfy our hungry and our thirsty souls, our hungry and thirsty hearts. He can do what no one or nothing else on this earth can do for us. And I love that Jesus uses the physical importance and the physical need of bread or food to communicate a spiritual truth. Our lives are totally dependent on a need for food. How many of us, you could be honest, how many of us have ever went to a restaurant or made a home-cooked meal, and after you ate it, you were like, that was the best meal I ever had. I, I need to take a nap. I'm like at eternal bliss. I'm full. I'm satisfied. I need to, I'll lay down. I don't think I'll ever have to eat again. You just read your hand think, if you've ever felt that way, I, I feel that way all the time when I eat, I probably overeat, but I go home and I take a nap and then I wake up three hours later and I'm like, what's for dessert? What do we got here to eat? Like that immediately I need more food. There's a total dependence on a need for food daily. As we eat our bodies, we, we break down the food. It becomes a part of us. It's turned into energy, into nutrients, to waste. Without foods, our bodies start to destroy themselves. Our hair can fall out, our teeth can rot, we lose focus, we lose our balance, we lose our memory, we lack energy, our organs shut down, and eventually we die. Food is essential for our survival, and it needs to be consumed daily. I can't just eat 10,000 calories today and say, 
all right, I won't be hungry for the rest of the week because I had my week's worth of food. No, it's a constant renewal or need of food daily. And I would argue that the Bible says our heart has a similar condition. That apart from Christ, the Bible says what well, we're slaves to our sin. That, that we follow the desires of our heart. We lust after the physical. We lust after the things of this earth. That we're never truly satisfied by the things of this earth. King Solomon, when he writes the book of Ecclesiastes, he's the king. He's the wisest, wealthiest, most powerful person, I would say, ever. He tries to find meaning in life by putting things to the test. Can I find my happiness? Can I find joy? Can I find meaning in life in, in these crazy parties? Can I find it in my many wives? Can I find it in, in food and drink? At the end, right, the phrase vanity of vanity says the preacher, all is vanity. He's saying everything's meaningless. And he ends the book with this, with this verse saying, fear God and keep his commandments. That's the conclusion to what brings meaning in this meaningless world is what? To fear God and to keep his commandments. And if that's not just convincing enough, think of advertisements just for one second. Whether you're watching YouTube or you're driving on the road or you're on Google or you're watching TV, you can't escape. Advertisements are everywhere. And I don't know if you get this, but their goal is to make you dissatisfied. Advertisements, their goal is to say, you're not truly happy until what? Until you get this, what we're offering to you. This will bring you happiness. As I see commercials for like the iPhone 14 or 15, right? I'm like, I need that. I need those 17 different phone or camera functions. I need all that, right? As I have an iPhone 10, right? It makes me want what's next. That you need the newer and the better thing each year or else you're going to get left behind and you're not going to be satisfied this week as I was preparing and, and I just Google searched advertisement and I just came to work after eating a really huge meal like a pulled pork sandwich and, and corn and mashed potatoes from home and I came to church and I was full. And I'm like, all right, I'm satisfied, here we go. So I just Google advertisements and there's a picture of a McDonald's billboard I found and it's a picture of the Angus 3rd Pounder Deluxe. I, I don't know, I guess it, it was either an old advertisement. There's a picture of this burger and above it said in big, bold, red words, crafted for your craving. Now, I was full. I just ate lunch. And in my mind, I'm like, I can go for some McDonald's right now. That looks pretty good. There's always room for a burger or french fries at McDonald's. Right? So, again, advertisements, they attack our satisfaction. They attack and make, say, you're not truly happy unless you have what we offer. And as Christians, and what the Bible says is we can't know true satisfaction because the things of this world are only temporary. We can't find satisfaction in the world. It's temporary. They only bring a temporary or fleeting satisfaction. Right? Every year we find ourselves wanting the next big thing, or maybe a couple of years. But Jesus' promise is that what? In him, we can be satisfied because what he offers us is eternal. What he offers us is from God, not of this earth. He offers us eternal life. In Psalm 107, the author says this, For God satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. So God, what? He satisfies our longings, our needs, our desires, our cravings. And when we're hungry, he fills it with what? Good things, with heavenly things. We see here Jesus is satisfied. He satisfies our hunger and our thirst and our souls when we believe in him. God's word is clear that when we put our faith in Jesus, we have peace with God. This morning, Keith read from Romans chapter 5, verse 1. I just want to read 
a little bit later, Romans 8, Romans chapter 5, verse 8 to 11, this is what Paul says. God shows us His love for us that in while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall be saved by His life. More than that, we can also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This word, reconciliation, we sang it, God and sinners reconciled. We read it over there. We read it here. That means that we can come before God, that we have peace before God. We're no longer enemies of God because of what Jesus did on the cross. It's not what I've done. It's not what someone else on this earth has done, but it's what God has done for us. That Jesus Christ came down and has died on the cross for our sins and our place. We're no longer enemies, but Jesus what has ushered peace between us and God. And I love too that Jesus promises us peace when we need peace, when we're going through storms of life, uh, storms of these lives or things that happen and all these events that take place when our world collapses, the, the, the Bible promises what? We can cry out to God and ask for the peace from the Holy Spirit, the perfect peace that Jesus can give us. As sinners who are redeemed or reconciled, we can go before the Creator of the universe and call Him Father. And Jesus would say a more intimate word there. We get to have intimacy with the Creator. Why? Not what I did, what Christ has done for us. So we see what? The incarnation of the bread, the salvation of the bread, the satisfaction of the bread of life, and the bread of life, that's Jesus. Now we see number four. We see Jesus' invitation. We see the invitation of the bread. I just missed my mouth completely with water. In verse 38, again, same verse, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus Christ is inviting those who are spiritually dead to come and to follow him. He's talking to that crowd that's there, listening. He invites poor sinners to come and to follow me. And one preacher, as he preached through this, he said that Jesus is using a literary technique called parallelism. He's saying two lines that say the exact same thing using different words. And the word come and the word believe. So it can be read this. All those who come to Jesus believe in Jesus. Or to come to Jesus is to believe in Jesus. And to believe in Jesus is what? Is to come to Jesus. Jesus' words come to me are repeated throughout the Gospels. The word believe, this was interesting, the word believe is found 241 times in the New Testament. A hundred times John uses it in his Gospel. This invitation is a call to what? To come to Jesus and to leave our old lives behind. Now I want to be careful. I don't want you to get to leave here thinking something called easy believism which means, oh, all I have to do is just, I believe in Jesus and I'm good. Now I can keep living the way I want. I can keep living the same life I had before I believed in Jesus. No. The invitation is what? To come to Jesus and to leave our lives behind. We can't cling to the past. We can't cling to who we were before Jesus and then at the same time try to have Jesus on this side and say, okay, I'll I'll take some of Jesus here, but I, I can't let go of this yet. I still want this. We looked at last week that before Christ, we're in the kingdom of darkness. 
And when we're in Christ, right, when we repent and turn, we put our faith and trust in Him, we're transferred to where? To the light. To, the, to where God is. The kingdom of light. Jesus doesn't say to the crowd, come to church. You've got to come to church. You've got to come to religion. You've got to come and do these traditions. You have to come and, and, and do this or that or that. But what does He say? He says, come to Me. Come to Me. And that's the same call for us today. When we come to Christ and we believe in Him, it means what? That we entrust our lives to Jesus. It's, it's an all-in follow. It's an all-in surrender. There's, there's, there's no turning back. It's not trying to have both what I want and what Jesus wants. It's a repentance, which means a literal turning away and pursuing Jesus. It's a total reliance on Him. And my closing question is this. Have you come to Jesus? And I'm not trying to make you doubt your faith or doubt your salvation, but have you put your faith and your trust in Him? Have you repented and turned away from your old self in pursuit of Jesus? Now this crowd, the way that this ends, Jesus fed the crowd 5,000 plus people. They're seeking Jesus. They want more food from Jesus. He reveals how, he, how they can get eternal life, what they have to do, believing in Him. And we read what? They grumbled. In verse 60 of chapter 6 of John, it says, many of His disciples, His followers, the people there in the crowd, when they heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And we see what? That at the end of this chapter, Jesus is left alone with the 12 disciples. The crowd went away. They could not truly, I would say, follow Jesus and do what his offer was for them, to believe in him. And what's left is what? Him and his disciples. And out of those 12, one of them betrays him. One of the most troubling verses, and I'm going to paraphrase it, is when Jesus talks about two paths, two roads that lead to two gates. The narrow road leads to the narrow gate, and he says, few find it. The wide path leads to the wide gate, which is destruction, and many find it. I think a lot of people, they like to, to see what Jesus has to offer. They try to, try to take what they can from Jesus selfishly, like this crowd. Jesus, we're following you because of the signs. Jesus, we want you to be king because we don't care if you say no, you're going to be our king because we want you. Or now, Jesus, it's not the signs, but it's the bread. Give us more bread. We want more food. Right? It wasn't a true following of Jesus. Their, their hearts were selfish. But as Christians, when we come to Christ, we let go. And we truly what? We're all in. We surrender. Have you come to Jesus? Have you surrendered and let go of your old self in pursuit of Him? And if you have, here's the hope. Here's the peace. We shall never be hungry or thirsty again. We could spend an eternity with Jesus Christ, the true and living bread of life that's come down from heaven. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank You so much for Your Word. We thank You for these promises that we read in Your Word that You are the light of the world, that You are the bread of life. We thank You for the offer of salvation. God, I just pray and ask for forgiveness, Lord. Forgiveness for, for those of us who have tried to earn Your grace or, or earned Your salvation. God, I pray that we're reminded this morning that we're to believe in You and our belief in You 
should draw us to you and let go of everything that's in our old nature as we follow you. Jesus, I pray that as we sing this last song, as we worship you, as we take communion together, that we can truly reflect on the cross, reflect on what you've done for us, that you loved us so much that you took the death we deserve. We thank you for your amazing love and your amazing grace. And in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Amen. If you're able to, let's stand and let's sing our last song. And let's use this as just a helpful way to get our minds and our hearts set and prepared for communion together. What child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping? Whom angels greet with anthems sweet while shepherds watch are keeping. This, this is Christ the King whom shepherds guard and angels sing. Haste, haste to bring him, Lord, the babe, the son of Mary. Why lies he in such mean estate where ox and ass are feeding? Good Christians fear for sinners here. The silent word is pleading. Nail spear shall pierce him through. The cross be born for me, for you. Hail, hail the word made flesh, the babe, the son of Mary. So bring him incense, gold, and myrrh. Come rich and poor to own him. The king of kings salvation brings. Let loving hearts enthrone him. Raise, raise a song on high. The virgin sings her lullaby. Joy, joy for Christ is born, the babe, the son of Mary. Raise, raise a song on high, the virgin sings her lullaby. Joy, joy for Christ is born, the babe, the son.